are listening to Chugga Talk with Ryan Murphy, a podcast by Pull Across Made Simple. Hello friends, this episode is brought to you by Saucy Farm. Located in Wiggins, Mississippi, they're the premier Australian stock horse stud in North America. Proudly standing are Ballandown Zorro, Hayden Satellite, and Stonebrook Finno. Ballandown Zorro has fresh cooled semen with a live full guarantee. Hayden Satellite and Stonebrook Finno have a limited supply of frozen semen. Ballandown Zorro offspring have proven time and time again that athleticism, endurance, speed, and intelligence are just a few of the qualities his offspring possess on their way to close to 200 Best Playing Pony Awards. Zorro offspring are also exceptional in hunter-jumper and eventing discipline. Hayden Satellite comes from the famous Hayden Horse Stud in Australia and is currently proving himself on the polo cross field. Satellite offspring were awarded Best Playing Horse in international test matches in 2019 and his offspring have now started to make a name for themselves in the jumping arena. Stonebrook Finno is the premier sire in Australia for polo cross. Saucy Farm is near and dear to my heart. By purchasing our two stallions two years ago, Karen and Charles have carried on the legacy of my family and the hard work that my mother put into bringing the Australian stock horses to the United States for the sport of polo cross. All four of my horses are a result of that breeding program, and you just can't go wrong. Saucy Farm and Australian stock horses, the breed for every need. You can find them on Facebook or call 228-263-0930. Are you a Polacross related business? Chucka Talk has a truly global audience. To learn more about advertising here, email me at ryan at polacrossmadesimple.com. Space is limited. On this episode of Chucka Talk, you'll meet Jeremy Marriott, aka Unit. We were lucky to have Raul Desai as a special co host. We discussed racket making, commentating, epic bloodlines, and much more. Here on Chucka Talk, the goal is to shrink the pull across world by connecting people together, and most importantly, to provide education by interviewing players from all over the world. So listen closely and enjoy. What's going on, fellas? Hey, hey. G'day. Hey, can you hear me? I got you, man. I got you. Oh, that's nice. You're outside. I am outside. I'm trying to uh, get a little bit of quiet um, time. We're in lockdown here in uh, in Melbourne. That means that Peter and I are sitting at desks opposite sides of the same office and she's talking over the top of me and vice versa. So (laughs) I thought I'd retire outside given it's the first day without rain for a little bit. Were you out and about and then they put you back into quarantine? Yeah, we've been in all sorts of um, stages of lockdown since about March. About four weeks ago, they put us into hard lockdown, so no more than five kilometers from home uh only one person in a vehicle at any given time only allowed out for a maximum of one hour a day and one trip um and one person per household out you guys know how to do it we're we're an embarrassment over here oh, man we're uh we're, we're not doing it so good here we we let ours out of uh, quarantine that was our issue we were going yeah. all right until we let them out of quarantine and then we stuffed the whole thing but, the pub. Uh, new zealanders have got it sorted yeah well welcome raul he's our special co-host here how's it going thanks for having me thanks for joining in. Since Raul couldn't have any Bundy, I thought that I would put the flag up and we'll do a toast to Raul and to Bundy. I got small batch. Jeremy tried to kill me at the last night of World Cup, so I stopped drinking Bundy. <laughs> after that. Man, I, think I don't think I was part of that. I, I, I didn't need to do any of that. You were well and truly on your own. <laughs> Rough night. <laughs> I believe so. I don't know that he washed away his sins well enough. <laughs> <laughs> 
No shit, I'll as, cut us off. As, uh, as your mate Whitey said, that may squirrels fight grizzly bears. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Yeah, there's, there's so many things to cover. You're like a wet dream for a podcast because, especially for Polo Cross, <laughs> because you're a Marriott, you hold the stud for Plucka. Oh my God. You make rackets, you're a commentator. There's so many things to talk about. I don't know where to start. Jack but of yeah, Jack you are. Master of nothing. Master of none. <laughs> So Raul has some questions. Speaking of COVID, I think he had a question for you to start off. I have a question for you? Yeah, regarding COVID. Well, uh, yeah, some of the listeners wanted that they were wondering how you're going about um, in isolation with your mask situation there. Yeah, well, it's interesting. It's, it's, it is interesting. The um, Victoria's um, very much... Uh, the lepers of the uh, of the Australian community at the moment. We... <laughs> no, you didn't catch on, mate. You specifically with your mask situation. With my mask situation. Okay, I've got it. Yes. Um, I uh, I have a unique uh, I have a unique challenge. I, don't, I haven't got a mask to show you, but uh, it's uh, I have a uh, I have a very unique mask uh, with a with a strap around the back of my head rather than the ones that hang on your ears. Well, thank you. Thanks for raising that, my friend. So was, who made it? Was it specially made or? No, it's a uh, it's an industrial strength one. It comes from the uh, from the woodwork section. Well, we got that question out of the way. That was great. When did you end up in Victoria? Because you're obviously from WA. What brought you to Victoria? So I ended up in in Victoria. I married a Victorian. I got stuck over here, married a Victorian, and got stuck. I uh, <laughs> the the '96 Nationals. I met I met Peter, my wife, at the '96 Nationals, and we sort of went on a a bit of a, a ride around the countryside to uh, to the territory and then back to Victoria and played the season here and never returned. It's a lot yeah. different than WA. It is. Victorians and West Australians have always had a pretty good um, working relationship and we uh, there seems to be a lot of cross-pollinisation between the two states. Um, <laughs> we have a lot of Victorians, um, expats in Western Australia and vice versa over here. So at some point we'll probably go back. We're looking at it at the moment actually, just trying to work out how we can sell up here in COVID-19 and move back to Western Australia with the family. Oh, really? Well, I've got a Perth jersey on. This is from 2010. Someone gave me a jersey, and it's it's Perth. It is Perth Polo Cross Club. Yeah, I try to make you feel at home, but I couldn't because I didn't have a Victorian shirt. But You see what I'm rocking? I see that, man. I see that. I've got my uh, I got the mirror duck one on for the moment. So. Ducks for life. Oh, okay. Life, buddy. So that's a mirror duck shirt, Raul. That's right. Okay. From 2010, has it been upgraded? It has been uh, upgraded since then. There's a pretty flash new one from um, in the last few years. So there hasn't been any pole across and there isn't any this year or w- will there be? Um, so from Victoria's point of view, there's been nothing. Well, that's not true. We started, we got most of our season under out of way. We were lucky because we started Christmas time and um, we managed to get right through to the Muraduck tournament, the jackpot tournament in March. And that was the last weekend before we went into lockdown. Everyone on, on the Sunday night, everyone was trying to find toilet paper in um, supermarkets and, <laughs> and the like. And, uh, and that was the last time any of us had time to catch up with each other and our friends and uh, and, the, and the general polo cross community in Victoria. The nationals got cancelled after that or um, deferred, and uh, and away we went. Some of the other states have opened up a bit now, and they seem to have a bit of polo cross going on in New South Wales and Queensland. But we're uh, got the handbrake firmly on here in Victoria. Your season's different, obviously, right? You would have they play mostly in your in the winter in New South Wales, but since you're so far south, you play mostly in the summer. Yeah, that's summer. right. Yeah. Uh, it's too it's too wet here. We don't have the facilities and the grounds that New South Wales um, use to uh, to play in the the winter months. You can actually play all year round in Australia if you start in the right state. You can travel the whole of Australia and play all year round. The seasons sort of all dovetail into each other. Oh, that's great. No one really plays in the winter here. It starts in March and goes 
shows through October. And that's pretty much it. Snowball across isn't that much fun, is it? <laughs> no, water polo. A lot of horses drowning in that. But so you came over in '96. You never went back. I mean, obviously, you're you come from good bloodlines with the Marriotts and John and Pearl. And who's the best player of the, your sibling? <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> hey, that's an awkward question, isn't it? No, the, no. Um, well, the most performed is Jane, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, and she'll tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> when was yeah. the last time you played together? Because you get over uh, there, right? You get over to WA sometimes. Yeah, it's been a while since I've played with my sisters. I played with Ashley uh, over here about two years ago. She came over for um, the part of the so that was pretty good to play with my niece and the like. Uh, but I haven't played with uh, Jane for oof, be ten years probably. I played with Jane at, um, at the state championships in um, in Perth when we played for Greenwich, but it's a long time ago, yeah. Growing up, played juniors together? So growing up, we had this sort of rule that until you were 12, you weren't allowed to play polo, go to the polo cross and play. To be able to go, I used to ride at home and go to pony club and everything else. And as soon as I got to 12, I was allowed to go to, go and play polo cross at a tournament, which was great fun and, uh, and the like. But then Jane, who's three years younger than me, immediately... Within six months of me playing my first weekend, she was allowed all of a sudden to go. So that's why she's three years ahead of me. <laughs> I still hold that grudge against my parents for that. What club was it then? Who were you playing so, for at them? So we played for Munyanooka. Yep, awesome. So we grew up playing for Munyanooka and we were yellow shirts through and through. I believe Jane's back um, at Munyanooka these days as well. So she's a, um, a Munyanooka player. I played for Munyanooka all of my life pretty much until I moved away from Geraldton and down to Perth where I played with Muresque for a period and then pretty much with Muraduck um, almost all my life for a couple of years of Karayo in between. Speaking of money, I got to play for them in 2010 when I went over and I played with Lyle and Trish and it was, it was awesome. I've actually reached out to Trish and Lyle to, to have a a yawn with me but they she won't respond so if you're listening trish putting the pressure on we've got to get the two of you you and lyle to, to be on the podcast come on giants get on with it <laughs> did you play polo growing up as well because i know that's a big part of the family not a hell of a lot not a hell of a lot i was i played a little bit i was much more um taken with polo cross the social side and the fun of the polo cross um thing so i played a little bit here and there and because my grandfather dan haggerty was very um into the polo i did a little bit with polo and then i spent a bit of time with ivan playing a bit of polo for a uh, for a year or two but really um, i dabbled in it on and off through my teenage years um and then didn't really do anything again till three four years ago and started got back into it i think i've seen pictures uh, i don't know if it was sarah's house at that time didn't uh, your grandfather play for with royalty so prince charles charles uh, yeah yeah, so uh, Stan Haggerty, my grandfather, breeder of sapling and uh, and and ultimately plucker, he played with Prince Charles on a, a number of occasions. In uh, I think I'm going to say 19. Uh, 1979, they came out to, uh, the, the Prince was out in Australia and uh, spent the week or four days of, of the week up on the station with Dad, um, with John, um, mustering out on uh, out on our station. As a very young kid, I can remember that. They went out camping and, uh, and camped and uh, enjoyed the, uh, enjoyed the uh, Australian outback. And at that time, he rode... If, who was, um, who I suppose is back to that same um, grey horse bloodlines that, um, that uh, If and Caution and Plucker and, um, and all of those are all by and from. So those are dominant bloodlines. 
Who who's the stud that you have that part of Plucker? We have um, over here at, at uh, in Victoria. I've got um, Eastland Fox, and he's um, he's actually we were just talking about if then um, he's one of Ifs children, and he's uh, I suppose you'd, uh, you'd say he's a three quarter brother to um, Plucker in the in the bloodlines goes back to Sapling on the uh, sire's side, and and um, and uh, half sister. Uh, his mother's a half sister to uh, to Plucker's mother as well. Plucker is probably a pain in the butt to keep white so do you prefer the speckled greys <laughs> the four white ones are a bit of a challenge because a spur uh, one spur mark and you're uh, you're off the field uh, blood's a bit like oil it doesn't take much to make a big mess yeah i mean obviously you have fox standing there and you know i got to see fox when i was there and kind of go on and talk about how fox and plucker and i know you had a another old horse that you and sarah used to like what was it harley or hartley or something and how have all those horses kind of influenced your current string or your past string and gotten you through the ranks and obviously now with Lockie and charlie playing and getting them up through so how, how's your breeding kind of influenced your horse power i suppose we've been really lucky that we've had those bloodlines that go back to uh, my grandparents, you know, so we've had multiple generations of polo slash polo cross horses. Um, so we're breeding, we've been lucky enough to be able to breed from a relatively proven stock uh, most of the way through. Almost everything that we have that we're playing at the moment, bar two horses, I think are um, homebred um, and they've been, you know, relatively successful for us. We've been really lucky with some, from ex- some extraordinarily well bred ones and, or extra- extraordinary good ones. And we've also had some, uh, some epic failures as well. Short of that, the only other one that, so they're all pretty much homebred except for, you know, Peter's good mare as well, who is once again, generation after generation of Holocross horse. And she's a mare that, uh, that spread by um, Hayden Turnbull and Daryl Smith and the Smiths. So she's a Bundy um, horse as well. So again, having more of those sort of, um, that level of, of, of generation after generation of Holocross horse. There's definitely a lot of, speaking of, of that family, there's just de- definitely a lot of horses that go through there and it's definitely a survival of the fittest to use some of those horses you're definitely getting the best of the best oh no no doubt i mean i i think um you know they they've got a very good machine they understand very early on in a horse's career how whether it's going to be good enough or or not and they're able to make the decisions early which is a hard thing to do after you've bred a horse and kept the horse for a period of time and make a decision that it's not going to uh, be suitable or it's um it's not going to fit the mold it's not always as easy to uh, to step away from how has polo cross changed in the last 10 years let's say and you're a commentator everyone should know that you get to even commentate on the games what do you see is going on recently the game is the game's got incredibly quick uh, from what it once was. Paces has, has exponentially grown in the, in the sport. It, it is incredible, incredibly fast. The horsemanship and the level of horse power is, um, is, is better than it's ever been. I think probably the biggest change for me has been watching the transition of the World Cup from uh, what Polacross used to be about, which was horse and rider, the best of the world's best horse and rider combinations. Um, so you go to the Australian Nationals or to, um, or to the, the top level competitions anywhere in, in a country and, and and you see a combination of horse and rider. So things like Charlie Books and Bebop, you know, these, these great um, horse and rider combinations. You know, some of them uh, extraordinary horses, some of them extraordinary players, and some of them uh, were just lucky to be um, max, mixed together and, uh, and became a, uh, a formidable combinations. But with the, the World Cup and that, we're seeing a, a lot of transition to brilliant players being able to ride any horse and get on and play any horse. And, and I think that makes the game 
an extraordinary spectacle. I'm not sure as, as to whether I believe that it makes the horse and rider combinations any better ultimately, though. The overarm, we gave that to the Africans a while back because they were having a hard time competing with the Australians. Now the Africans are influenced, even Australia, used to play eight, eight-minute finals and it does it's it's interesting to me that it's Im- actually influenced your sport i understand that the players that went over to south africa or th- that have played in the in the land rover the high goal those are the ones that really excelled at world cup such a mix of the games speaking of perth polo cross i'm in the 2011 world cup sibo did an overarm just to make you know just to sort of rub in that they whooped us in the third place game the uk that was the only overarm that they did uh that was against us so that was interesting but yeah what do you think i I think there's there's a lot of controversy about the overarm and and you know i'm neither here nor there with it it's it's i I do think that ultimately what we need to do is one way or the other it's it's a bit funny having two different rules for um in uh, two different games almost you know it is what it is everything evolves and you evolve it one way or the other and uh, and let's just get on with it it's definitely brought about a a a style of polo that is different to what Australia always was. You know, that's probably been good for the game. It's definitely made more spectacle of it. The African um, style of game is a phenomenal game to watch and you can get, you can save a lot of horsepower by getting 60, 50, 60 yards on a pass. You know, you can get so far ahead of anyone else um, at that at, at that level. So that makes a difference. They're also the fact that you can shoot from anywhere within the area. So you don't have to take anywhere near as many turns out of your horse. So from a horse welfare point of view, I think it's, it, it, it shows some um, uh, some some promise. It is what it is. I, I enjoy watching it. I'm absolutely atrocious at using it. I tried. I went to the Zambian Open and uh, and got absolutely slaughtered by the Ray boys in the area. And I tried one of those overhands, and I think everyone will attest to my uh, incompetence at it. So uh, I won't speak any more on it. Over here, we don't have a choice. We have to play that style. But it's, I'm sure it's different for you because it, you've got so many more players and it, you can sort of turn that switch on and off when you're at a, a, a home tournament. We're a mixed game now. We don't play it at all in Australia. It just doesn't exist. I think that's to our detriment at, at the World Cup because short of a couple of players, you know, the Jimmy Gruelses and Abbots and, and those that get over to Africa and, and play a bit over there and have been able to bring it into their game and use it instinctively, the balance of our players in Australia don't have that as an instinctive part of their game, which is detrimental at that at that higher level. I'm sure you're thinking about some, saying something, Raul. What have you? What are your thoughts on all of this? Uh, I mean, we we've spoken kind of extensively on this, and I, I, I tend to be kind of in agreement with Jeremy. I think it ultimately needs to be one way or the other. Myself, having grown up playing that style, and then coming over here and playing Aussie style or whatever you call it, and then now being back onto international rules i think it definitely has its its pluses its pros as as jeremy alluded to the, the saving of horsepower horsemanship you know you let the ball do all the hard work and ultimately you still have to have a good horse to get you to the ball in the first place but once you get comfortable with the racket and, and the ball traveling the game certainly opens up and flows much quicker and much smoother it seems but i also see the other the other side of the argument that it takes away from some of the horsemanship and you know it's much easier for once to score goals and whatnot but you know at the end of the day i'd be hard pressed to to vote a no against it once you start playing it it's it's easy to see the the pros outweigh the cons i think okay along those lines jeremy what about the multi-horse where do you see a good use for that Mm, polar (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, over here, if you've got a big enough club, you can have practices to get your young horses going. But the argument is is that it's not the same as a tournament. Let the young horses play in these tournaments and get some experience. It's, it's an interesting one. I, I, I personally have um, pretty opinionated views on multi-horse. I, I don't see that it's any value to the game at all. I think, in fact, it, it, it actually does the opposite to what you were just talking about, which is having clubs and, and, and making clubs a, um, a an area for um, player development and horse development. gives If you start to make tournaments the places that you train your horses, then you take away from having the need for clubs and ultimately um, that development just disappears. So I'm, I'm a big believer in, in, in club first, you know, and that's where you train your horses or at home. And then when you go to war on the weekend is where you bring your horses out. From a horse welfare point of view, I think it's extremely detrimental when you're playing a horse and you're having to come up against fresh horses every second or third game because the opposition's able to bring multiple horses, whereas you've only got one spot on your truck or one spot in your float, horse float or trailer. And I also think it's detrimental to our youth um, who just aren't in a position to have multiple horses or haul multiple horses to, uh, to tournaments um, to be able to be competitive. The only way I see it is ha- having any... Uh, merit uh, genuinely is to uh, is to put it. If you want to get your horses going at a tournament, you can play as many horses as you want in as many spots as you want. But there's no finals, and it's not it's it's not a competition. It's simply a um, it's simply a training um, exercise. When I spoke to Joy Poole, had a phenomenal conversation with her. She talked about how her horses, even the Smith's horses, would go after the ball in the lineup. There was so much done at at home as far as the training getting the, the, the horse on the ball. When you're looking at training a horse for polo cross, what percentage of it can you get done at home with the basics of how you want them to move and cha- and follow the ball? A percentage that can only really happen at a practice or a tournament. I mean, how far can you get a horse without putting that pressure on them? Oh, probably not the best person to ask on, on this sort of thing. To be honest, I uh, my horsemanship is probably one of the weaker parts of my game. I do think that the majority of what you need to do can be done at home. It's about getting the horse to go where you want to go when you ask it to go there without questioning you and to do what you want to do when you want to do it. So all of that is the fundamentals and the basics. If you get that right, then once you get onto the field, you have all the buttons that you need and you have all the company that you need. Sure, uh, it's handy to have someone else at home, at least to have uh, another horse to, uh, to to get around and get amongst. And practices are the best place for that level of introduction. Um, so having clubs that have practices and have training days are the, are the best part of it. The majority of the horsemanship piece should be completely done at home, I would have thought, um, or in, uh, in a practice environment. If you're planning to go to war, you want to go to war with a horse that's got all the buttons to start with. Otherwise, it's, it's unsafe, both for you and the animal, if you're putting a... Uh, immature horse into a um, into a competitive situation obviously the horses you're playing from their bloodlines are quite clever as far as the way that they hunt the ball i mean do you find that there's some breed advantage to that compared to other horses you've ridden that they just have a little bit of something different i think good horses have an instinct to um to want to do something you know most of the ones that we've been lucky enough to have over the thing over the journey they'll be annoying the other horses in the paddock or they'll be pulling the rugs off the off the <laughs> fences or they'll be undoing themselves from the tie-up rail or something because they have a, a 
naturally inquisitive mind or they want to do something and they get bored very easily. So when you throw a ball out in front of them, they go, oh, look, ball. Um, <laughs> or they, you give them an opportunity to beat another horse in a, in a ride-off. They genuinely enjoy that. Um, and I think having a horse that genuinely enjoys the game makes for a lot easier training than one that doesn't enjoy the game that you've actually got to convince to go where you want them to go. I've found my experience with the stock horses is that they're very smart. So they'll try to get away with things in the beginning. They're, they're just so smart in that regard. Once you get through that, pretty easy at that point. They're super smart. We tend to, we tend to like that, um, that, that stock horse line with a little bit of toughness of the thoroughbred in it. So every now and then coming back to a little bit of thoroughbred blood over the top. The stock horses are very, as you say, incredibly clever, but they are, um, they are just a tad too clever for their own good and can very quickly learn how to get out of doing things if you don't right. uh, keep, keep them honest. Whereas you get a little bit of toughness from the thoroughbreds, they'll go all day for you as well as have those smarts. Raul has a cross special who's just a phenomenal horse. And just because we don't have as many full-blooded stock horses here, you have to go three steps to get to back to a full stock horse after you've crossed them. So we, we've had a lot of thoroughbred crosses that have just been phenomenal. I mean, just I think of Xena way back when. And I'm trying to get some size on my horses. My, my good horse is 15-3. That's the biggest one here in the States, I believe. The other ones are typically 15-1, 15-2. Special's a little one, Raul, but how do you see... That's right. That's right for my size. So how do you see Special compared to the other horses you have? I know that you've got another cross. Yeah, I, I tend to. I think it was uh, James Hackland on, on his podcast. He tended to lean towards preferring the first crosses over the full stock, kind of like Jeremy said. I've had the privilege to work with a lot of full stocks, including some of yours and you know your mom's. And some of them certainly do tend to be a bit too clever for their own good. And that, that thoroughbred in them seems to give them enough bit of, of spunk and, and go. And for me, I, I think I prefer that as well. And I couldn't even begin to tell you how lucky. Uh, to have a horse like Special with us. Um, he's certainly the best horse I've ever played and we're spoiled to get to play him. I wish I had uh, Cambiaso's kind of money and could clone him like his string. <laughs> <laughs> the stock horse influence has been tremendous for the U.S. Uh, you look at across the country, from East Coast to Central Zone, West Coast, there's stock horses popping up all over the place. So all of the top players are may have at least one or two stocks um, in their string. And, the, you know, the Saucies are doing a phenomenal job of breeding now. The numbers are only going to to continue to climb and as we get some of these more international bloodlines in and there's a couple of finnos and and some other australian studs coming in and talks of some of the south african studs maybe coming in fingers crossed theoretically we should have some pretty good horsepower down the road we just need to build out membership and build out tournaments now jeremy outside of your bloodlines are there four or five top polo cross studs right now in the country or are there 20 or 30 you name four or five off the top of your head that use as an outside breeding look this hundreds of them to be honest um, there are some particularly well-known um, names that are genuinely turn out consistently good horses year on year whether that's Barragoon horses that are coming out of there they turn out very very usable very very good horses um, continuously whether it's coming out of the Hunter Valley there's there's a number of sires through there through the, um, the you know the Turnbulls and the Smiths and the, and the like that just turn out good horses year after year after year if you go up to Queensland there's phenomenal bloodlines continue out of there and, um, and the same pretty much across the country there's so many different derivatives of um, of stock horse and bloodlines around and then and then that level of almost performance horse rather than um, stock horse which is a, a stock horse with a little bit of thoroughbred or the like um, just throwing back along the lines and then there's a lot of crossover with some of the um, the polo strings as well so the Hayden horses and have been particularly successful I could name heaps for you but I'd be doing injustice by a 
by too many of the others by naming any in particular, really. Well, that's good to hear, though, that there's that many. Uh, are you doing outside breedings or have you sort of kept them close to the family? We've, we've done some outside breeding over the term. It's probably purely through being tight and also <laughs> just feasibility or easeability. Um, when you've got a, st a stallion here, um, it's easier just to throw the mares in with your own stallion. But we're at a point now that everything for us is going to have to be outbred from now on because we've got too much bloodline um, of the same they all go back to sapling, eastland sapling, and uh, and you know those same plucker lines that we can't continue down that path. We've, we've got to get some outside blood in, and we're probably a little bit small in some of our horses as well. Our fillies, in particular, are, are, are not quite fifteen hands. A lot of them, and that uh, that makes it very hard, you know, to be seriously competitive in in men's level um, A grade polo cross. They're great for polo and them for everyone else, but um, B grade and the C grade. But they are just a little bit small for that. Those heavy knocks. How old is your stud right now? So Fox is he'd be twenty two, I think. And then we've just just left Colt entire this um, this season. So we've got a new one, a half brother to the mare I play. Sorry, a full brother even to the mare I play. The moment a little fella called Captain Feathersword um, for those Wiggles people so he's uh, he's uh, being retained at the moment as an entire and we'll uh, play a bit of polo on him and see how he comes comes up and we'll probably keep him as our uh, as our future so uh, he actually has Plucker as his uh, grandfather so he's out of he's out of a mare um, that goes back to Plucker so we got managed to get three two or three fillies out of Plucker before they uh, before they cut him and turned him into a uh, into a gelding and Jane got one and I got one and um, he goes back to me or I got. To be honest, I never got the never sat on him. Tell the audience why you uh, refused to sit on him. He was Dad's horse. He was extraordinarily good with Dad. He played nationals with my father. He played nationals with my mother, and he played nationals with my sister, uh, my two sisters. So he took four people to national titles over his career. There was nothing good that could have come from me sitting on him. There was, if I if I did any good, if I did any good, it was only because of him. And if I didn't do any good, I was the only person in the world that couldn't ride this bloody horse. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. There's no options for me. Good way to look at it. Is there anything else that's out there that's sort of been a controversy or just sort of a new thing to the sport that associations had to deal with? Anything else? I'm probably not off the top of my head right at the moment. I mean, the biggest issue for everybody is is navigating a way through COVID and maintaining the numbers of people in the game through this time so that we're still at, still there at the other end. You know, the, the healthcare impact of COVID will be one thing, but the, the economic impact will be there for many, many years to come. And how that'll impact playing base, I don't know. I think there'll be some, some people that are hit pretty hard by it. The only other thing that probably just in answer to your question a little bit might have been also, you know, we really had some challenges with the drought. We're lucky in Victoria, but you know, the whole of Australia had some real challenges with the drought for the last however many years. And um, that saw a lot of strong polar cross families and strong polar cross bloodlines and the like uh, depart the game or just uh, move away from the land because they, they couldn't um, continue. On that path, yeah, you know, I think there's been some level of relief there. A lot of those generations are gone now; you can't get them back. How long was that drought? It varied depending on where you were in the country, but you know, some people were in drought for nine years. Crazy, yeah. It's almost like they should think of a word <laughs> for what's not in drought, and then that should be the weird thing. Or the, 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 the... <laughs> it, it, it'll be interesting. I think some of the best polar cross horses we've ever seen have come out of the um, off the back of drought seasons. And I think it's um, you see a lot of really good horses come from wet saddle blankets lots and lots of miles and lots and lots of work. In drought times, um, up in 
you know, sort of Queensland and northern New South Wales and the like, and they've got to take cattle out on the road droving uh, because there's no feed in the in the paddocks. So they'll take, um, a lot of the, the farmers there will take livestock out for a month, two months, three months at a time, just um, grazing the sides of the road. The horses that come out of that turn out to be extraordinarily good horses over the journey. And John Hart had a, a brilliant one that came out of there, old um, Spinnaker, and you know a lot of the ones that Hayden Turnbull's had over the t- journey or Ross Turnbull had came out of those sort of spaces. So it's been, yeah, it'll be interesting. I think I think we're on in an era where we're going to see some really, really solid horses come out of that space, out of those drought years. That's how Polar Cross began, right? They were working cattle during the week and go camping on the weekend. Oh, look, I think it's definitely part of the culture. There's a lot of people that you know, still do that. Uh, it's one of the one of the challenges that we have. When agriculture's challenged in Australia, the first thing that goes is that spending money to go away for the weekend, put diesel in your fuel, in your truck and go and play polo cross and, um, and drink rum. When things get tight, it's bloody hard to do for people. Do you have the polo cross around you where within a couple hours there's a bunch of clubs? How far do you have to travel? We're lucky in Victoria to some extent, probably... The furthest we travel to a tournament in our season would be five hours during our season. But, you know, we've got majority of tournaments for me are within two hours of here, one to two hours. So I can go to I can go to a number of tournaments, you know, whether they be at Ballarat, whether they be at Trafalgar or Sale or um, or at Murdoch that are very close. And there's only one or two that are further out. It's not unusual for us to load the truck up and head off to New South Wales and so go for a go for a big tour where we go, you know, eighteen hours to up to the Hunter Valley Bay or the like. We'll usually do that, try and do that once or twice a year. I'm headed ten hours to my closest tournament because I live in the middle of nowhere in, in New Hampshire. Raul's not even making it up. He lives about five hours away. When Peter came back from uh, that tour of the US years ago, I could I couldn't comprehend the hours you guys do go to to get, you know, to you know, from Texas to North Carolina or um, or wherever it happened to be at any given time it was just unbelievable the amount of uh, kilometers you do so why didn't you get to go on that tour just the work was um, particularly busy at that point in time i haven't d- managed to get a, uh, a u.s tour yet so i've been lucky enough to play pretty much everywhere else in the world over at some point in time but i haven't managed to get on North every America year you've been saying you're coming we're still we're still waiting on it oh, i had a leave pass and i had everything for this year i should have been there about three weeks ago to uh, someone came out with COVID 19 wrecked the whole situation <laughs> <laughs> we're seeing the value here or at least we're talking about grab someone from New Zealand, Zambia, you know, that sort of thing. I think even if it's three players, you know, just not the stress of a full-on international team. And even playing with those international players is more valuable than playing against them as a as a team. We're definitely open to those. Yeah, that's that's cool. That's a cool idea, actually, being able to play with a bunch of different. You know, it's it's sort of reminiscent of some of the Zambian Open that I went to and a few things like that, where you you get to play with a bunch of different people from different parts of the globe. It's pretty cool, fun. When but, was that? Uh, it was 2016, I think. We went over there. I reckon the year after the World Cup, African World Cup. So when was that? 2000. Yeah, 2016. Yeah, there was a Zim open at one point back in the day. And- there was. So there's been, they've, they've been quite, say, proactive is the word, or innovative in the in the space. So, you know, the Zim Zam and um, even South Africa with their high goal and open. And now I see New Zealand has their uh, their big high goal tournament every year, every year as well. So there's definitely a, a burgeoning high goal circuit coming together globally, which would be pretty cool to, uh, to, to, to keep an eye on. I was involved with polo for a couple of years. I was the assistant coach for Harvard 
covered polo and it sounds all fancy but it really wasn't i was just <laughs> underpaid you know take look it's a, it's an expensive it's an expensive game it's nowhere near as expensive as polo but it's still an expensive game so anywhere that you know there's a, a way that we um, we can help subsidize some of that scenario it, it's a very, very interesting thing. I, the, the one that I want to see is I, I really want to see uh, an international event with everyone on their own horses now. It's almost never going to happen with, unfortunately, between South Africa and, um, and Australia, but I'd love to see it. Um, I think it's entirely feasible with the right level of sponsorship between Australia and New Zealand, where you have riders, you know, horse and rider combination, best horse and rider combinations as opposed to best players. I think that would be a, a phenomenal event. The funding and, um, and build of it would be... Uh, it would be a massive undertaking. It seems like your government might help a little bit. Oh, for sure. There'd be some way of getting some little grant grant of some sort, but um, it's, it's a matter of, you know, we'd never, quarantine-wise, we'd never get horses in or out of um, Africa. Or you get them into Africa, but you'd never get them back again. So you wouldn't, you, wouldn't fly, you wouldn't want to fly your own horses from Australia. You guys know what the quarantine's like coming into Australia. You've been oh. uh, through that in the past, and we've got, we've got a level of COVID-19 restrictions on top of that nowadays. So you're yeah. basically not. You've been slapped on the wrist for trying to bring in um, a dirty set of boots or something, I imagine, at some point. Oh, they just spray everything. We went to New Zealand recently, and my wife accidentally left an orange in her luggage. A dog sniffed it out and charged us $300, $300 US for that. Man. So we got fine coming in New Zealand. Expensive orange, that one. <laughs> you were talking about traveling, you know, one, two hours, and with you but then you also hinted on loading up the not un, not uncommon to load up the truck and drive 18 hours so you're not only known for your polo grass, but you're also known for for driving a style so <laughs> tell us talk, talk to us about about the the old girl bev the bus and uh the new boy in town Poor lots of, lots of memories with uh, with all bev she was yeah she was, she was a great machine beverly the bus she looked after us particularly well we had her for oh near nigh on 20 years so ryan you probably i don't know whether you've ever seen or, or been uh, heard she was a she was basically a greyhound coach that had been uh, fitted out internally for as full as living quarters and we had a, a seven horse trailer um, on the back of <laughs> on on that so we could do three thousand six six hundred kilometers without stopping um, oh my gosh short of uh, short of the driver needing to go to the toilet um, but the uh, we had enough fuel in in the uh, belly to uh, to do three thousand six hundred kilometers and we had enough fridges in, in the uh, in the bus to keep the crew. Well lubricated, as well as the um, as well as a, an ablutions area within the bus. It was uh, fantastic, well and truly um, underway before we arrived. Um, <laughs> in fact, I can remember a couple of weekends with Raúl and Seth here that we we opened the front door of the bus when we pulled up at Polocross and uh, just poured them out onto the ground. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no such thing ever happened. There's a video somewhere. I think it's uh, if you if you look up Seth's Facebook or YouTube, I think there's a video of of Raul twerking in the bus at, um, <laughs> at on the way to Polo Cross with about nine thousand rums in him. <laughs> so you're driving around on a bomb, pretty much, with all that gasoline and the petrol in there. Everyone's all juiced up. So when there's an actual flat tire, are there too many people trying to manage it? Or do you have sort of a pecking order of who's in, who's in charge? I can tell you no one manages it. Everyone refuses to be part of it because they're big wheels. And <laughs> there's been a couple of instances. Probably the, the one that springs to mind the most was we had a, um, a young fella come out from Zambia and stay with us for the season many years ago. Um, you, you guys would know him, Murray Evans. 
um, as, a, uh, as a as a sort of under 21 year old. His first weekend away with us, we were coming back from Townsend. Uh, we were about 50 k's down the road before uh, the front steerer blew. We jumped from one side of the highway to the other. Uh, thankfully, there was nothing coming in either direction, and we managed to um, navigate our way back onto the right side of the road and um, get the new wheel on, and, and away we went. But um, you talk about uh, tyres, that was a very, very nerve-wracking moment. But the only other time that I can remember anything particular with tyres was about 47 degrees um, Celsius. So um, I can't think of what that is. On the way back to tournament in Portland, we did a, uh, a tyre and it was an inside jewel. So it was always the most difficult one. And the road was speeding everything back up at about 4,000 degrees. And the engine was above me and I was getting in there, getting this tyre off. Isla, young. Do you guys know Isla? Yeah, um, of course. Yeah. So, in, buff, infamous, yes. The buff, the, the the buff unit that is Isla rocked up and, uh, <laughs> and, and 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 stood there holding uh, no shirt on, so the girls thought it was fantastic. Right? <laughs> he was there helping, so he would hand me nut. He would hand me the wheel nuts. That's that's about as much use as it was. But for the rest of the trip home, all I heard was, "Oh, wasn't it so good that Isla stopped to help? Oh, wasn't it so great that Isla stopped on the side of the road to help us?" And, Anyway, that's funny. Yeah, I've met Derek. Yeah, yes, of course you've met Derek. Yep. (laughs) Good looking, good looking guy. And uh, I believe they are expecting a uh, their first child. Um, I saw some announcements recently. I haven't spoken to them for a little while, but I believe they are expecting their first. So that'll be uh, quite exciting. But uh, it'll be it'll be tricky for young Isla because he will need to uh, take care of someone else a little (laughs) bit more. (laughs) Oh, it's Isla. I love you, Isla. It's all good, bud. So obviously the bus has been a, a huge gem, served you well. It goes without saying that sort of whether it's whether whether it's comment, commentary or not, I tend to upset people on the odd occasion. <laughs> but purely because you know there's not enough people to do it, or there's not enough people around, and uh, it's always it adds a level of atmosphere to any game to have um, commentary. Um, to it so yeah you know, i've been lucky enough to do a number of national titles and i think well, i can remember doing the probably the biggest game i can remember doing was the men's final um with mark simmons in um the nationals in um in ballarat in 2010 actually you guys were here weren't raul you were that's, yeah I'll, that's the one i was there for yeah yeah, so that was um, that was pretty good, pretty good fun. I really find commentating a lot better when there's multiple people doing it uh, rather than a uh, an individual. So I like the ability um, to throw back and forth between one or two, and to, and to have someone that's actually able to not just feel off lines, but can actually talk about some of the things that you may not be seeing in the game, or you're not able to uh, pick up the people uh, things that are happening behind the scenes, and a little bit more of the strategy side of it. Probably the, one of the funnest ones I've ever done was doing the under 12s or the under under 10s I think it was in, in Zambia and the Zambian Open uh, when the Zambian Open was on they had a game in between and doing those under 12s there was, was great fun it was just phenomenal fun we just uh, rev it up and, and, and get the kids excited we had a, had a ball yeah so you sped it up with your with your commentating and everything was a little bit inflated when you're commentating does how much does it matter that you know the players because that has an influence on what you're saying right yeah I think it does and where they've come from and how they've got there and, and you know and understand a bit more about their horses um if you know the horses and or don't know the horses um you know do a bit of research and find out a little bit about that been lucky enough because i've been put around polacross for a, a long time to know a lot of the the more senior players but i really struggle um with the under 21s and the juniors that come through 
and knowing you know who they are, what club they play for in some other part of Australia, and um, you know and whether and how they've got to where they are. That's um, that's one of the more challenging areas to commentate. You know those those spaces, and I think to be able to give that credit is is hard, and it's hard for any commentator. At a regular tournament nearby, how many games are you doing on a, on a regular weekend? Because obviously, if you're good at something, they're going to make you do it. And you've got an umpire, you've got a family. Ruthless, I suppose, about it. Well, there's two things. I think people get very tired of listening to the same voice over and over all, um, all weekend. So it's good to have some level of variability in the in the commentary side of things. But Luckily, and to his credit, Lockie, uh, my oldest, has been doing a lot of commentating lately, and both Polo and Polo Cross have been um, very, very successful at it. Uh, he's probably, you know, one of the better commentators getting around it, um, and you know, he's been picking up a lot of my slack, which has been great for me. Uh, <laughs> so I haven't had been called to do it. Say that to the club that's holding the tournament. If they want me to commentate, that's fine, but I'll do that. You guys get someone else to umpire. <laughs> that's a good trade-off. Commentating on Sunday is hard to have a beer with because we've got the heavy vehicles to drive home and they're all zero-zero alcohol content, so you can't have a beer on a Sunday at um, at Polo Cross these days. Raold has a a few drinks on Sundays when he's uh, in other countries. Robbie's had some serious drinks in other countries, yeah. Yeah, in other countries, yeah, he's responsible. Not here when you're driving 15 hours back home and then (laughs) going to work on Monday morning. Oh, I actually want to debut this on the podcast. I haven't made a post yet. Since I live so far away from everyone, I don't have any any passing partners. I've taken a poster <laughs> of Robbie and I put it on a tree. He's more of a passing buddy, less than a target. I made sure I called him and I told him what it, the purpose of it. More of a shrine than you know anything else. I'm grateful to have Robbie. He's the one that I played my first A-grade game with, and I still look up to him even though he's uh, about half my size. Are you taller than him, Raul? I like, I like to think about him. <laughs> Do you think he was taller before he got that old? Or? I learned who was, the, who was the shortest, and depending on who you ask, I guess that, that, that will dictate the answer you get. He was, he was taller when he, when he used to wear high heels. <laughs> <laughs> he's biking six, six miles a day right now wow uh, he's still got it he's an yeah. incredible he's an incredible what's the word i'm looking for he's a, he, he, incredible um athlete and, and performer um for the u.s he's um you know he's single-handedly the best produced polycross player that um, i've seen come out of the u.s ever um for both for uh, ability and consistency um and longevity his horsemanship is um is exemplary and um and his, his game plan and strategy is uh, is exemplary as well I, you know i couldn't speak more highly of robbie i think he's one of the he's one of the good guys yeah he does cast a big shadow yeah. for his size <laughs> <laughs> hayden's almost taller than him now let's talk about your coaching you're a certified coach but do you do a lot of coaching with your club again i used to do um a lot more than i do these days i think um as i get a little bit older and the game styles change a little bit as well the uh, some of that relevance disappears a little bit i think there's also a lot uh, you know i've been proud of a lot of the Muraduck uh, guys that are coming along and stepped up over the journeys um you know some really great players and some really um clever players and uh, and strategists amongst um, the club who do a lot more of that coaching. I suppose I've been proud to have been associated with um, you know, getting them going along the way or having some uh, small part of that um, over the journey. So that's been pretty good. But uh, you know, these days, the um, a lot of our A-grade youngsters, when I say youngsters, they're in their 20s, but are the, uh, are the, the, the club leaders. And yeah, I think that's, um, that's fantastic to see. As far as where you're at with your playing right now, I mean, how competitive are you now? How much, how important is it to you to win? How many state representatives are in your club? Do you uh, 
uh, have sort of that competitive spirit still? Yes, I do. Um, I'm, I'm competitive enough now that I'm going to make sure I'm a selector next season. In years gone by, I didn't have to worry about being a selector. I was, uh, I was usually assured of a, a spot for a bit, so I was uh, reasonably comfortable. But these days, it's, um, it's, you, you need to um, lift your game a bit, unit. Um, we've got, uh, what have we got? We've probably got one, we've got two. In our men's contingent, we've got four nationals players. Two of them are men's players. Two of them are mixed players. In our men's, so we've got Kelly Allen, who's former representative, played in South Africa as well as um, New Zealand and Australia and all over the place. Just come back from a tour of New Zealand um, earlier on this year um, with Elliot and, and a few others. Uh, Victorian representative side going over there. So we've got we've got some really really solid players at the top end of our club at the moment we're lacking a little bit of um of, of quantity at the bottom of the club and i think we're you know I, that's where i'd like to spend a lot more of my focus on coaching and bringing on um a lot of more of the beginners and a lot more of the um you know the, the general club community because i think i typically see most clubs as a uh, as some sort of triangle a triangle if you if you put an axis a, a quality axis on um, on the vertical and a, and a and a quantity across the um, across the horizontal. Effectively, the only strength that you gain is by having big numbers at the bottom of the triangle, mm. um, and then the quality can get higher and higher and higher. If you erode that strength at the bottom of the triangle, um, or the, you erode the quantity, you end up with a, a very, very um, unbalanced and very, very unsecured um, triangle with um, a lot of strength at the top that just collapses as soon as those um, numbers below are gone. And I, I think we need to focus a lot more on getting new people into the game, um, you know, repurposing um, people that have been doing other things, whether it's team petting, whether it's camp crafting, whether it's pony club, whether it's um, other horse-related disciplines. I think there's a, there's a lot of work that we need to work out how we're going to do that and focus on the high-performance part of the game, sure, but also focus on the um, the fun side of it which is the, the people talking about your playing and coaching how would you describe your playing style if you ask your siblings I, I won't mention which one you can you can guess if they ask about your your writing they would describe you as not the prettiest of writers but a very effective writer get the job done and I know from firsthand from playing with you that very dedicated to get the ball and you do whatever it takes to get the ball and you know to end that you can kind of hint on your story of uh you talked about schooling horses and putting in the time at home and making sure that they go where you want them to go when you want them to go. And so I think you know the story I'm hinting to about, I believe it was Fugs, if I'm not mistaken, coming out the back of the line out at some tournament. And uh, tell, tell us about that tournament. Commentary that I'd say my writings or my polypro style is, 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 is passionate, but not necessarily super proficient. <laughs> A bit like my golf, passionate but not proficient. <laughs> Don't let enthusiasm get in the way. Some years ago, I, uh, I went north to the Hunter Valley with a fr good friend of mine, Rick Henry. I'd had a horse go out on me um, on the way up, I think. He said, oh, here, jump on this little mare fugly of mine. And uh, I said, oh, no, I don't really like riding other people's horses. I'd much prefer to break my own. Rick Henry, in his usual conciliatory self, suggested that, unit, get on the bloody horse and play the horse. Wouldn't come this bloody far to sit down. So I got on the horse and, um, and we went out. And I can remember lining up as a three, which is pretty unusual for me 
anyway at that time. The ball was hurled in and turned this mare out of the lineup of Ricks and I dived out the back and another friend of mine, Colin Parkinson, was uh, was beside me in the in the three out the back and we used to always have a little bit of banter on the field. So he was we were playing Muscle Brook and um, You're a Corindai. Yeah, it was at Corindai. Uh, we were going at a at a fair rate of knots after this ball and it's sort of one of those ones that was just coming off the horse's feet as they were reaching out. You couldn't quite get to it and it was it was moving at a reasonable amount of pace directly across the field towards the grandstand you'd say all of a sudden I felt this mare start to just cheat a little bit on me just started to back off just a tad and I applied this bit of spur and and then I noticed Parco's horse um, just duck, exit stage left, just straight out of the picture. And, and I looked at and rather than looking for the ball, I looked back over my shoulder to laugh at Parco and say, ah, oh, your horse is cheating. And give him a little bit of lip. And I gave Fugly a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of spur on that there to keep her going. And she sort of questioned me again. She said, are you sure, boss? No, oh, of course I'm sure you're cheating. And uh, having never read her, um, ridden her before, I didn't know how loyal she was. And, uh, and I turned around and the next thing there was a bloody roller on the side of the field there and uh, Craigie was moving the roller down the side of the field. I flipped the sideline and the roller straight in, jettisoned myself straight out over this, this uh, 5,000 um, kilo roller, steel roller oh my on the back of a tractor. She hit it um, chest on, spat myself onto the ground on the other side of the roller. I got up and I'm wandering around, sp- stomping around on, um, having a little bit of a dummy spit about why the roller was so close and, and you know, checking this horse out, this borrowed horse that I've just uh, just annihilated into a roller and all I hear is from the background look up unit look up and live we wouldn't have been the roller it would have been the bloody grandstand get back on <laughs> Rick Henry in the background <laughs> commitment, commitment right there that's true commitment so uh, I came I came home that weekend and I said to uh, after that um, trip to Corinda and I said to Pete, I said, oh, I played this mare. She's a pretty tough little mare. She goes pretty well. I think Rick's interested in selling her. You know, that was uh, that was it. Pete went and got her two weeks later, kept it a secret for a bit. Three weeks later, I had Fugly at home. She was a good one. I was, I was fortunate to get to play when I was there, along with some other phenomenal horses of yours. Mm, she was there. a cracker. She's actually just out the back here. I can just see her over the... The Native Americans, uh, they were known for being sort of the sacrificial horse, so they're willing to, like be at the back of the pack and be the one to die. And it seems like she was, she had that sort of commitment for you. <laughs> she was just willing to do whatever. Yeah, she that she's tough. Pretty, she was, but, uh, except for when you asked her to stop. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, sometimes she questioned whether you really wanted to stop that hard at that point. But other than that, she was, we just used the turn instead. So what position did you play on her mostly? I mainly played at number one on Fugly. And where do you find yourself yeah. playing now? I was really, really lucky that I got a, a, a really good mare that we bred, luckily, um, to a, an outside stallion um, of Phil Porter's um, Talisman Fiddler. And she was she's the best mare I've ever had in my life. Um, I had her for a number of years. I think, Raul, you might have played Venus, Venus. as well when she, was, when she was reasonably young. But she was extraordinary, extraordinary mare and just got better and better as she got older. And she taught me how to play a lot of three. I'd never played much three in my life. And she taught me how to play it. And uh, so these days I play pretty much anywhere one two or three my favorite place to play is is to play a one when you're the weakest person in the chucker if you can afford to have your strongest person as a two or in the three you know, two strongest people behind you playing a one um, with as the weakest player is, is, is so much fun yeah so what horses do you still uh, do you still have now from from back when we were there Take uh, it. I know, oops it's, oops is still going strong we lost oops last year i'm afraid oh, um, no. or beginning of this year so we've got we only ever got one foal out of um oops and she's been an absolute 
cracking um, mare. She's a very, very good polo mare. She's a little small for polo cross um, at this stage, but she's been very good. So, uh, oops, it's Daisy. Oops, a Daisy. Uh, and we lost Venus a couple of years ago. Foal out of her, unfortunately. She was a, a once-in-a-lifetime horse, and it was never meant to be two of her or any more of her. So it's just... Uh, it is, it is what it is. Um, other than that, I don't think there's many others that are still that we've still got from when you were here. F um, there's two fillies at of Fuglies um, that we have now in the spring. Um, so Betty and um, and Swampy. There is was Sapphire here when you were here. The grey. Uh, yes, retired, right? Yeah. So we've got some of her progeny about, and they're probably our, our top tier horses. So a little um, Rony mare called Lara, who's she's an absolute cracker. Really lucky to get her straight up after. Um, uh, losing Venus, so the uh, and then we've got we got another little mare called Lady Gaga, who everyone she's sort of uh, she's the communal pony. Um, everyone gets to ride her. The, she uh, was, uh, I think, the uh, woman drew her. That's correct. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The World Cup. Yeah, so she was in the yeah. World Cup team, um, and the South Africans drew Oops, Daisy in the South um, World Cup as well. So yeah, Lady Gaga has been. You know, she's good fun little mare. She, again, she's quite small though. She's a, she's a a, a smallish mare. So you had two horses in the World Cup? We did. We're, Apprehensive we're, at all, putting horses into that sort of environment? Oh, not really. Yeah, we've been lucky enough to play all over the world, um, Peter and I. Um, and people have always put horses under us. And at the end of the day, the horses are there to be used. That's what we put them up for. If I didn't want them to be used, I didn't um, want to risk them, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't have put them up. So I'm more than happy for it. Um, and you've got to think that the people that you're, you're mounting are the best that your country can produce. And they don't become the best that your country can produce by being horse uh, wreckers. Mm. Uh, I'm not really, uh, I don't really have any issues mounting anyone um, you know, when they come over within reason if we can if we've got spares that's what we're there for yeah i have a question sort of lingering in my mind from the, our conversation talking about having top bloodlines and top horses when you look at the top players in the country right now or at least in victoria let's say do you find that there's a financial barrier where someone they bought a well-trained horse compared to those who have just brought up you know maybe did Yes and no. I, look, I, I actually see it almost the opposite to that. I typically see that the people that, that spend the money go out, lash out and, and go and buy extraordinarily high priced and, and, and good quality horses tend to never get to the highest level um, because they look for the cheap. It, it, it's, the, it's the easy way. You know, and, and they never have the skill. They never develop the skills needed. They never just develop all of that level of horsemanship. There's few exceptions. Don't get me wrong. There's ex exceptions to every rule. But, but typically, those that are the most successful are those that are able to bring their horses on, build their own horses and, um, and, and, and drag horses, you know, create horses themselves, whether that's financial, you know, with no financial requirement other than uh, other than their own time that's a tremendous yeah tremendous point that you made there about that yeah good, out, uh, good outlook yeah yeah those that have have to work get the best out of the horse it's a very it might be a very expensive horse that use the word princess gets to ride they end up coming over here being top horses but then they lose confidence over the years and they get reduced into lower jumping levels just because of the rider. So they're the, they're the ones that when you want, they're the ones you want to buy um, <laughs> down the track. You wait, you let someone spend the big money and then wait, uh, wait <laughs> until they're um, they've been through the system and spat out the other end, and then you uh, and, and then you go back and buy them and a little bit of re-education away you go. There's some uh, there's been some fantastic deals squired that way over the time. I wanted to talk to you about racket making and, and that business that you have. How long has that been going on? Did it for a long 
if you can't deliver and you let people down, it was becoming more of a problem not being able to get things to people when I basically put it into hiatus a bit. It's something that as I get older and um, get a little bit more time back, I'll uh, pick up and start tinkering with again and, and do. But the market's changed a lot too in that space. The calibre of um, mass-produced racket now is so much better than it ever was. The stuff that's coming out of um, out of Bennett's and Bombers is great uh, material now. That you know The, the quality of, of those um, rackets for the um, price that you pay is brilliant you know it's phenomenal years gone by you needed to everything needed to be handcrafted by um, Milner or um, Bob Connolly or um, those sort of things that's gone you know you can get you can get that level of quality now with the manufacturing techniques that exist back in in your heyday let's say when you were producing the most what differentiated your racket from the other rackets was it just like you said like a Bob Connolly or Milner where they were just handcrafted and very high quality or what was your differ- differentiation? We've, we used a couple of different things. So the, I, I think one of the ones we tried to make a very cost effective racket. So we just spent a and, and everything, a lot of pony club kits and the like um, to make it accessible. So there was a lot of, uh, we focused a lot on that. The other thing that we focused on was was the net, making sure you have the right net. If you don't have the right net, um, you, the whole thing's completely um, useless. It doesn't matter whether you've got a, a graphite plastic or, or cane head. You can see, you can look at a, uh, you can look at any player be reduced to a uh, to a degrade looking player uh, because they've got a net that won't throw. So we're using different material uh, for the netting and obviously using the sourcing the cane from the same places, but your nets were different. Well, everyone sort of made their own, had their own nets manufactured to their own uh, to their own requirements. So. In, the, in our heyday, we'd, we'd spend a lot of time getting the, the design right for the head shape. There was a, there was a long time for you know, five or six years um, as we were transitioning from the, the, the old round style heads to the, uh, the more oval and, and then squarer type heads that um, the nets were not fully transitioned. They were still a derivative of, of living in the, uh, in the round head and they were just modified. You know, that's changed. And you know, we would like to think we were early in that um, on that curve, making those nets specifically for the square heads or the, the oversized heads um, with that, you know, being able to have a really deep net that still throws very quickly. This, is, this might be a little bit controversial to say. I guess not controversial. Back in the day with when the square heads were coming out, uh, those rackets, I was using a Conley and then I eventually switched to a Milner. They were sending us rackets that were meant for more beginners and so the shafts were a lot more flexible. And so I'd see so many missed pickups and I'd be at a, I'd be doing a, a clinic and I'd say, well, that's actually not your fault. That's the racket's fault. <laughs> I was actually putting a lot, I was very frustrated. In recent years, um, I believe they've definitely changed. Amazing what, what a small difference can, can mean. And Yeah, it's, it's probably one of my biggest frustrations ever in, in that industry or in that space was that you'd see a lot of Indian uh, manufactured, cheap Pakistani manufactured rackets um, that were sold as polycross rackets. More akin to you know, buying a baseball bat from, from Walmart. You know, it's not actually a bat, it's a toy. You, know, you, you couldn't go out and hit a baseball with it and expect it to uh, to, to stand up to that. It's the same as buying these, these really, really um, cheap Indian type uh, manufactured 
um, polo cross rackets. They just had a piece of netting in the in the end. They were never built for polo cross. And, and what it did, it, it really dampened a lot of people's enthusiasm quickly. They'd start playing and they're not able to throw the ball, not able to pick the ball up. So you go to a pony club and they will say, oh, we've got some rackets. We bought them at, you know, years ago. And you'd see the kids trying to pick the ball up. They can't pick it up. They can't throw. They can't do anything. And they give the game away before they even start. So that was incredibly frustrating to see these people that thought they were doing the right thing. But in the end, they just couldn't play. They, they couldn't make the game seem easy or, uh, or accessible. And so they, they never tried it. They never continued with it. Give them a, a set of um, rackets that they could pick the ball up with and, and, uh, and they could do anything with and away they went. Like, oh, this is, this is a lot more fun. It's a lot easier than I thought it was. We had a gladiator racket. Terrible. I think the net was made out of what seemed like shoestring lace almost. Oh. And kind of that same thing that you, you talk about, you know, beginners would, would get them because they were very cheap and um, battle to throw the ball and, you know, one thing leads to another and the, the poor kid is so frustrated that they end up throwing the racket down and breaking it in the process and stomping off the field. Where did those yeah. rackets come from? Who made those? No, no clue. They're no probably clue. hiding somewhere because we definitely yeah. want, to put out, we want to put out a hit on them right now. I would now. <laughs> it's it's not constrained just to, to those type manufacturers. So it's also, we're all guilty of it ourselves. A lot of the time, what you'll do is you'll go to your bag racket bag and you'll take out the things that you don't play with and you'll, and you'll give them to some beginners to play with. As an um, experienced player, if you don't like it and you can't use it, <laughs> so you're going to expect a beginner to be able to use it. If you can't throw out of it properly, then probably a beginner can't either. Um, so sometimes I think there's a uh, we, we, we can be guilty of uh, trying to do the right thing but actually being detrimental in the process. And it's funny because I used to be able to adjust the older older rackets, you know, the, the triangles, very simple. But they've actually outsmarted me now there's all these different adjustments they've made it so that i can't adjust my own rackets anymore <laughs> so now yeah. i have to find raul who lives 15 hours away to say hey can you that's all right he can't adjust them <laughs> <laughs> after that how many hundreds of rackets i made staying with you i hope i had learned a thing or two the beauty is the stuff that's coming out of Benno or um, or Bomber or, um, or or you know those sort of space that they they basically don't need adjusting to any great extent. They almost come off the shelf almost perfect these days. So I remember years ago when we'd get a racket, you know, before I was even making, them, we'd get them. You'd have to adjust them just before you could before you could even start to use them. You'd have to try and adjust them to get them right. You know, they were never they would never ship. Um, it's so much more consumable. I think. Uh, there's a lot of credit has to go back Del Curtis, old Del Curtis and uh, Dennis Milner for the transition to the deeper net um, and uh, and the way that they built the uh, you know built the new style of net. They were pioneers of that. My last racket, even even last year, I was using a Milner and it was a deep net. That's when I put on Robbie. Since I showed you that picture, I, Robbie's got a Milner. He said, "Don't put a." you know, different kind of racket. He wanted a Milner. Those rackets, I was just so confident with, obviously with the other style. And I took a break from 2012 to 2018. And I came like you can uh, with these other rackets. So I've had to switch from a deep net to one of these bombers. I, I watch it now and, and I watch it, I watch the World Cup and I watch these guys that go through, you know, that for so many years, you used to have your favorite 
tied together with a bit of um, bailing twine and a bit of number eight wire just to uh, just to and hope that it made it through the nationals for you because you never wanted to go near your second racket right um, but nowadays nowadays you watch these best players in the world you watch lance anderson and jimmy grills and um and uh, and yanni and that stephen harris they just they just go and get a different racket they're, they're like tennis players they just get another one straight out of the bag and away they go they have no qualms in taking a brand spanking uh, wrapper off a racket and going out and playing for you and i we used to have to take one out of the bag and then we'd um, train it for four years and <laughs> by the time we got by the time we got it right it had it, it had nothing left of it right it was just about dead you'd have to stretch out the net every time you played because you had that old net and you had to step in the in the with the ball and stretch it out we ask a lot of them though you know, <laughs> you, you watch these tennis players they like they they go they play one or two sets and then they throw the right they get a new one and they reset you know and they and, and they change grips every, every game we want one that we can um, buy at the start of the season get bashed by each other smash it into horses get trodden on throw it on the ground let horse sweat get all over it let um, water get thrown on its grip and everything else and we want that grip to stay nice for the whole year and we want it to um you know the whole racket to last just 12 months and everything else it's it's crazy i, w- I want to talk about balls uh, for a second here I only use Milner and because of the quality, because we've had some other balls that just weren't that good. So have you been through that where you've made balls and it's hard for the... So the, the, Mil- the Milner ball is, um, is what was a Dunlop ball, and it's made from foam latex, which is very different to all the other balls which are made from synthetic foams. And uh, that Milner ball, there were two plants, two Dunlop plants. There was one in Australia and one in Africa. Um, Zimbabweans had a Dunlop ball plant. In, uh, they were making the same balls um, that Milner made in Australia. Um, they were the two plants. And uh, they've been particularly successful. They're really the only balls in the world short of what Del Curtis started to make. And they were they were called Hull and then got bought out by Rosemount um, balls. So those those balls were very commonly used in Australia and still are. Very, the Rosemount balls are um, still used as, as much as the um, Milner balls are. I think the world is in a bit of a sticky situation at the moment because I, I think we're, we're at a point that there's only one of those ball plants left and so bombers bought that i believe from um from dennis um and and the supply of balls is a real issue um, and the price of them is incredibly um challenging because they're made of natural latex as opposed to a way to develop a, a synthetic alternative more accessible you want to be able to go to a pony club and and leave them with four or five balls to practice um with or go to a um you know an adult riders club and leave them but you can't do that it's 500 worth of balls um, to do that today we need something akin to a, a five dollar ball um, that can be used for those sort of things so when i think about uh putting the paint on a ball we actually had someone named johnny frank back in the day in colorado and i remember he covered the ball with paint and he had it hanging off a string but you're saying today those balls are being made in a factory it's the same foam but it's still made by and they'd be shipped over, and then they were dipped in latex, um, which is the paint you were um, talking about. It gives them their orange colour or their yellow colour or their whites. So it puts the skin on them, and they hung to, and they hung up to dry. The difference between those and the Milner uh, balls was the Milners were made um, by Dennis and um, Betty in um, in Oakey in Queensland. They'd mould the the ball blank itself locally. They'd you know, foam their latex and create their own ball, and then then they would once they cooked them up, they'd dip them in the in the latex um, skin and um, and hang them up as well. Oh, that's interesting. Bomber and there's Bennett right now, and they're just making high quality rackets. Everyone has their preference, but from two guys who have been doing this a long time and 
you know, been there, done that and experimented with different materials and kind of come out with their, their own golden product, so to speak. Ultimately, I think it comes down to, to user preference, really. You're going to have just like you have somebody who's a, a, a Nike shoe guy versus a Reebok shoe guy or or whatever have you. I feel like that's probably the same thing with brackets. And the other thing is, is accessible to them. They're going to gravitate towards that, whereas if you've got someone who farmer or raise more accessible same thing there certainly no racket maker and i don't know the ins and outs of things but you know that's just my kind of unbiased view both high quality products nothing nothing wrong with either of them i think it's just preference wise i think you're pretty right on most things there the only thing the, the differences i would say is that you probably have somewhat more choice in your um, in the bomber range they've got um, and plastic and uh, and the like um then rackets tend to steer towards you know just the two plastic heads you probably got a slightly better chance in the bomber range, but realistically, um, I think you're on the money when you say accessibility is the major thing there, um, and per- and personal preference. I think um, I don't think there's a there's a lot that you'd hold between them. Well, would you say that it'd be pretty hard for a new racket maker to come in, or do you know anyone that's trying right now? I don't know anyone that's trying, but I don't think it'd be that that hard. The the, the challenge is the market. The market's relatively limited, right? You're going to sell. I don't know if you sell to every polo um, cross buyer if you sell them one racket a year your worldwide market's probably five thousand to ten thousand um rackets five to ten thousand rackets right to do your, your tooling and your molding and um and all of the elements that need to go into it it's not the sort of business you'd pick up as a, um, a money-making exercise um i wouldn't have thought the, the interesting one affordability at the moment sure. because bennett's are made in australia and the the labor cost in australia is significantly greater than in africa getting a, uh, a bennett out of australia uh, is probably going to be somewhat more expensive than the market is for um for bombers now they probably sell for very much the same in um, in the u.s and around the world but there's a uh, there's a sub dealer in that process who's making a margin it's not as easy for for uh, for graham bennett to be able to give as much margin to the sub dealer as there is sure. um, for bomber um, in that space, so I think that's probably um, why accessibility is, um, uh, is 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 different in different places because of the margins and the uh, and the pricing. So who who is an influence on you? It was a bit of a hobby thing to do to subsidise some of my polo trots when I was a teenager. Mm. It sort of went from there, so it sort of gave me a little bit of spending money on the weekend, um, and it just sort of grew from there at the time. Speaking of subsidising my polo cross as a middle-aged man uh, hosting a podcast, I'm looking for a racket maker to <laughs> sponsor my my podcast. There. there you go, bomber, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> Get them up to boys. It's an arms race. It is. I, 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 I do got to say, though, the one thing that's incredibly impressive, whilst we've, we've um, crossed swords over the, time, over the uh, journey with, um, <laughs> with, uh, with Graham and Bomber and these guys over the time, but, uh, their support for um, Polacross is, um, is exemplary. They're, every weekend you go away, there's rackets being given away by Graham or um, Bennett or rackets being given away by Bomber. There's always, you know, they're always, and they're the same people people that are always um, asked every weekend to sponsor this or sponsor that um, and they always come up with the, uh, with something so I, yeah that's that's bloody impressive yeah I was fortunate enough to have a spacky Benno clinic Aspen in probably 96 or 97 that was phenomenal that's when I first met uh, Graham Bennett they've been doing it for a long time and they're very committed and 
make good high quality product. What will your legacy be? I'm going to throw out that word when it's all said and done. But what do you think about your legacy? You know, 10 years from now, what will people have said about you? That oh, that's <laughs> that's out interesting from question. left field. <laughs> what, 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 what are they going to What are they? There's so many it? things. Uh, yeah, you've, you've uh, done so many. I don't know. I'd, I'd hope people thought I was passionate about the game and um, the betterment of the game. You know, whilst I'm relatively opinionated, why I have opinion, uh, strong opinions on it because I do love it. Um, and it's been nothing but fun for us and our family um, forever. If I could play some small part in developing the improvement of the... Of, of have missed each other. But no, think about the Barbarians tour thing. <laughs> we can uh, get some Marriott's together. We could even invite you know, Isla. <laughs> Anyone that you can bring bring together, we're happy to host them. I love that. I really, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's fun times, those sort of things. And uh, as you say, it takes the uh, pressure of the uh, of, uh, of uh, representative all across the way to some extent. Um, I'm not comfortable um, going through quarantine with Isla, though, or customs with Isla. He's going to have to do that on his own. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate it. Happy to know your family, but uh, definitely a pleasure to get to speak with you. Gents, thank you for your time. Really enjoyed it. It was a bit of fun. We'll try and get you some Monday somehow, run, Raul. We'll get something over your way. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, hi, hi to uh, the boys and Pete. Tell them we miss them, and hopefully we'll catch up with you guys sooner rather than later. Yeah, fingers crossed, hey. Yeah, stay safe over there, guys. Cheers. Keep a horse ready for me for when I come back. Cheers, all. Mate, there'll be always one here. (laughs) Cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode. Jeremy's a true riot. It was so much fun and nice to hear from someone involved with polo cross in so many diverse ways. From rackets to commentating to breeding to international exchanges to family. What a great time. Hey, Ryan. This is Daniel Johnson here. Listening to podcasts, I thought it would be a fun thing on your podcast to ask a lot of people what their most embarrassing polo cross moment was and their most proud polo cross moment was. I think everybody probably has at least one or two really good stories in those two categories. Thank you. Have a lovely day. All right. You heard Daniel. Let's make it happen. Please submit your responses using my send voicemail sidebar button at polacrossmadesimple.com. Here on Chugga Talk, we appreciate your feedback. Have you enjoyed the show? Do you have questions or comments? Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. For a chance to be featured on the show, leave a voicemail by finding the send voicemail sidebar button on polacrossmadesimple.com. For more Polacross coaching, go to polacrossmadesimple.com. You'll find ebooks on how to become a great player and even on how to become a great coach. Find me on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a good one.